Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. Today we are having two guests that we've already had on the show before, our co-workers Christy Farrow and Eric Jacobson. We have recently uncovered some big news in the Todd Carter life story, so we're going to jump into that this week. Todd was one of three brothers who goes off to enlist in the Confederate Army. He was a smart young man. During the war, he receives the rank of captain. He was an aide to the quartermaster. And eventually, he starts working as a war correspondent. Christy, what was our understanding of Todd's role as a war correspondent up until this point? I think you're giving people at home a glimpse into their soldiers' lives from a personal and a military perspective. So... He was writing these articles from regimental camps and battlefields, and he was sending them home and giving people this glimpse into their soldiers' lives because they didn't have contact. And he's also keeping up the morale of people at home. I mean, even when things were going really crappy, he was like, it's so great. The morale's so good in the newspapers. And then you read letters of soldiers, and the letters from the soldiers are like, it's hot, and we're we're hungry, and we don't have shoes. And Todd Carter's like, the, we're, we're going to win. We're almost there. How early in the war does it seem like he started doing this? The e- earliest one that I have is 1861 in September. But it's a very, very drastically different letter than later on because it's sort of, it's not Todd Carter's voice. It's talking about how um, Kentuckians don't want us here and, you know, all the negative aspects. And Todd's not like that. When he writes, he's always gung-ho and positive, and this is going to be great, and we're going to win. And the first letter isn't like that. And how many letters did he end up writing total? Oh, my God, Gravy, I don't know. How many have you found? I have found four that we didn't have. So up until October of 1864 was his last one. So actually five. I found five that aren't in the Rosemary Rosalie Carter book. So... That's quite a bit, though. And I found a few that I really, really strongly feel are him, but they just say correspondent, which, you know, sometimes they did. But I can't I can't prove it's him. What makes you think that those might have been him? Because it has that same sort of he's very confident and sarcastic and sort of fun when he was Mm -hmm. when he's writing. And he never says what he means. He always talks in a roundabout way. So I've found a couple letters that are from the the 20th Tennessee. It'll say the 20th Tennessee, but it, it'll just say correspondent. So I strongly feel they're him, but I can't prove it. And I was going to say, Chrissy, you're the person who probably is in the weeds with these letters the most. What is your favorite letter? The escape letter. Up until oh. that one. Up until that one. I really like the last one that he wrote just because um, I wish I had a copy of it, but I don't because I think it's almost a prophecy of his death. I mean, the last words he said was, in a month, I'll tell you about the gallant charge, the, the soldier who fell in a gallant charge towards the enemy. He talks about a, a friend that he witnessed. Yeah, he's talking about someone else. And he's mad because the Confederates have passed a law that uh, correspondents can't tell you, you know, you can't put an article directly in the newspaper because you're giving away um, your details. So the, he wasn't allowed to do it anymore. And so you had to wait one month. And he said, so next month I'll tell you about the gallant charge where a soldier died. Um, and then he died in a gallant charge. What 
up until that point, what kind of stories did he tell? Were they all summaries of battles that he were in that he was in, or were they more mundane stories? I would say almost entirely his letters are talking about soldiers um, and things that they had experienced within war. So what what that's why I love this letter so much, um, the escape letter, because it's not just about war. It talks about society and things, but he's talking about the places he's seeing and the things he's doing. And you get a sight into his personality just a little bit more and how confident he is. And I don't think we have any other, even the letters that he wrote, I don't think we see as much of his personality as we do in the escape letter. Well, why don't you tell us about finding this letter then? Um, I was obsessively just looking through newspapers. Um, and every so often I'll just, because they add more newspapers all the time. I was putting in just different searches and I was at home. It was like eight or nine o'clock at night and I was on my phone just playing around and put in, I think I just put in julep. That's all I put in. Um, and it came up because they call him julep in here because they don't, the index, like the people that wrote the articles aren't indexed most of the time, you know? occasionally they are, but a couple of the letters that I found, I've only found because I looked for something within the letter. And then I'll look on the page, like in the index or on the search bar, I'll put julep in just to see if it pops up and it won't pop up as even being there and it's there. So I was looking up crazy, um, just like mint or just julep and it popped up. And at first I was like, oh, this isn't, cause you know, mint julep's in the newspaper a lot. A lot. Let's talk about that real quick before we get into the content of what you found. So Todd didn't write under his own name, Todd Carter. Mm-mm. He wrote under a pen name, mm-hmm. and his pen name was Mint Julep. And yes. was that was that common that people would write letters to the newspaper under a pen name? Oh, yeah. Um, a lot. Of, it's crazy. I just found this wonderful letter from a soldier that was here in 63, and his pen name was Scandinavian. And so um, one was a Caesar? Cassius, something like that. And um, the gentleman that owned Albert Roberts, who owned the Chattanooga Rebel and the Southern Confederacy, um, and actually after Those are the newspapers? War, yes, newspapers. And then um, his father owned the Nashville Whig and the Republican Banner. So he was an editor before the war at the Republican Banner, but Albert Roberts wrote under two pen names, um, depending on his voice. If he was his funny voice, he was John Happy. And he, his other pen name was like Spear Kine, Kane, Spear Kane. So yes, very common. That was the short answer. Yes, it's common. <laughs> so you decided to search for julep or mint or mint julep and... All different variations. And I don't remember which one found it. I think it was julep. And what, um, how did you immediately know this was something we had never seen before or you had never seen before? The word that was at the top was escape. And I looked down at the date and it was April 8th. And I was like, oh my God. And I sort of pulled it up and I just started reading and I went down to the end immediately um, and it said mint julep. And then I started having a panic attack. Why was seeing the word escape so important for you? Because I knew it was right after he escaped and um, it just seemed I knew that he had made it back to his men by April. Um, because we, I've seen the things ca- that came out of his wallet before, and he has IOUs that were in his wallet that he signed, he loaned people money um, in April from Dalton, Georgia. And so I saw escape, and then it said from a correspondent, um, and it actually said from Dalton, Georgia. So I, I'm, that's what it said on the top of the first letter that I found, because this, um, I found another one longer later. But those two words, 
it just, I just clicked on it and I started reading and then hyperventilating because the detail was so perfect and wonderful. So let's, I think we should put a pin in that story now of what, of what you found and what it actually said. And I think Eric, I'll address this question to you. Can you talk about what our understanding of what was essentially the last year of Todd's life, the, from the moment he was captured until the Battle of Franklin, what did, what did we believe unfolded? Um, well, he's, he's captured at, um, at Chattanooga. He's captured really um, close to Missionary Ridge in late November 1863. And then he was imprisoned for um, a, a short while at Johnson's Island, which was in northern Ohio. And then from there, he was being um, transferred to... Um, Point Lookout, which was another POW camp um, in Maryland, and so we we had always known, or at least accepted, what had been told is that he escaped somewhere between those two, jumped from a train in Pennsylvania was sort of the family story, and um, he didn't come home. At least there was no evidence that he had come home, and I I always thought that showed his really commitment to the war effort. He he wasn't. Uh, he wasn't interested in coming back to Franklin. He was interested in getting back to the Army of Tennessee. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we we presumed if he if he escaped sometime early in '64 that he was probably back with the Army um, early um, as the as the Atlanta campaign kicks off. And I think that what we've you know what Christie found has has reinforced that. And then of course he he's with the Army throughout the the fighting in and around Georgia, in and around Atlanta, and. Um, he takes part in the invasion of Tennessee that, that autumn of 64. So up until that point, there had been this story that he had escaped from jumping from a train, but there had, that we knew of, there was no documented proof. It was just kind of a family story. And while oftentimes there is a kernel of truth in those stories, our job as historical interpreters is to not, not just automatically present them as truth until we find documented evidence. So, so Christy, you're saying when you saw... In this letter, which was dated when? The newspaper article was April 8th. The letter was dated April 5th. Of 64. So when you see this article dated in April of 64 and Todd mentions, or Mint Julep mentions escape, what does that tell you as a as an historical interpreter? What does that tell you about what he might be getting into and how that changes our understanding of it? Um. Honestly, I was just so overwhelmed to see escape. I, I just started reading it, and it was just within the first words that you could read. It starts talking about because I had previously found an article that talked about the escape, but it didn't mention any names, and I was certain it was him because it was a New York City newspaper, and it described exactly um, what happened from Johnson's Island on. And so I started reading, and it it, it gets right into the details. So let's talk about the story he tells in this in this letter. Can we start walking through what what he what oh, story he presents? He he goes back and forth, but he talks about just all the men that arrived at Johnson's Island, which was the prison he was in. Mm-hmm, yes, the prison that he was in, and he talks about how um, they were going to be transporting them to other camps and um, that they were going to do it alphabetically, and everybody was hoping for a. Um, you know, everybody wanted to be at the beginning of the alphabet, and he was, so he was moved first. 
he talks about getting on the train and trying to liquor up the guards. They used all of their whiskey on the U.S. guards because they all had a plan to escape. And he and um, James Gubbins, who was a soldier in the 5th Louisiana Infantry, had a plan together. So James Gubbins came up to him and said, you know, follow me, Julep. They sat down and somehow... They had they jumped out the window feet first as soon as a guard would turn their head. And so James jumped first, and just a few minutes later, Todd jumped out. And their plan was to turn to each other and sort of walk, but they never met each other. And Todd, which I just think shows so much of his personality, like he jumps out of this train, which is brave anyway, or stupid, one or the other. And he jumps up immediately because his adrenaline is pumping, and he just takes his hat and hits the train as it's leaving, (laughs) which I think shows a ton of, you know, just what's inside of him, his personality. The windows were forbidden to be raised, and every movement of our boys, even the stirring upon our seats, while the train was dashing on at a breakneck speed, was watched with cat-like jealousy. Away went the cars, and away went the hours, but blue coats and bayonets were still around us. The hope we had nursed so tenderly folded its wings. Great God, I to be free, to be free I. He alone who has been in the Yankees' power, even for a brief hour, can love freedom arightly. The cars had not stopped their speed. I was sitting near a window. Captain James Gubbins of the 5th Louisiana Regiment was sitting just behind me. Our schemes were the same, but we had exhausted our supply of whiskey in fruitless efforts to intoxicate the guards. And we had exhausted every expedient that the ingenuity could suggest we were still prisoners. He tapped me on the shoulder and said, Julep, follow me. He lay with his head on his companion's lap with his head against the window, and as the sentinel nearby turned away, he raised the window with his foot, thrust his legs through. His friend lifted him gently. He gave a spring and was out. The window closed, the seat was empty, and he was free, but the Yankee was no wiser. Away went the cars. In a few minutes, another seat was empty, and Julep stood by Mother Earth and touched his hat to the swiftly departing train. Or at least that's the picture he wants to paint of himself when he can write about it later. (laughs) And so he's in the middle of, you know, Ohio, right outside of Massillon, Ohio, because he did walk to Massillon the next day. But think about what dumb luck it is to jump out of a train as an escaping Southern prisoner. And you walk up to a house of Copperheads, which are Southern supporting Northerners, and they give you a place to sleep. They give you clothes. They give you a gun. They give you food and money, and they send you on your way. So he goes to Massillon, gets on a train, goes to Pittsburgh, and um, ends up staying at a hotel because he has to wait for the next day for the train um, to leave Pittsburgh. And he ends up staying the night in a room because you had to share a room at that time um, with a U.S. soldier. And he went down to the bar. He passed a good pub, and he had a beer because he needed that. Um, got on a train from Pittsburgh to Columbus, Ohio. And then in Ohio, there was some problems because um, he there were escaped soldiers from Camp Chase, which is actually one of the prisons that Moscow was in. 
Um, and so there were soldiers everywhere. So he went and found another pub, got drunk with a guy, a U.S. soldier, and then came back to the train as they were all buddy-buddy. That so scene that in the would... letter almost seems like like a Quentin Tarantino movie to me. Like, <laughs> it's funny, right? You, everybody knows something's up, and you know, like, any moment shots could be fired, but... <laughs> You know what's really interesting? Remember in the article he said that he had a piece, he said, now Mint had a little piece of gray lace attached to his jacket. There was an article in 1863 where another correspondent was writing to John John Happy, Albert Roberts, and said, I saw our mutual friend uh, Mint Julep recently, and he's looking um, as fine as a sprig of fresh mint in his new lace frock. And I thought, ah, it's the same shirt. (laughs) So anyway, he gets down eventually from Columbus to Cincinnati, which is called what? Porkopolis. <laughs> Why is that? Uh, Cincinnati had become this major uh, pork processing center. Like hundreds of thousands of hogs um, were were slaughtered and, and food produced, and so it, and it's it's so crazy. He knew the name, like he knew what Cincinnati was called. Um, he, he's just an interesting character. I mean, he's, he's writing about this grand adventure, and, and I don't know that he really embellishes anything, but he seems to almost enjoy it. He, he enjoys the chase. He enjoys the game. Um, and I think it really shows us a lot about who he was. I think he stays in Cincinnati for 10 days, mm-hmm. which is like, I don't know whether it's a Tarantino movie or just a, some sort of crazy like war movie. I mean, he's hanging out in enemy territory. And, f- and literally flying under the radars, drinking beer. He's hanging out with soldiers from the other side. and Smoking and cigars. Smoking cigars. And, you know, mom and dad would probably be really proud. But he's, he's certainly something else. And then he takes the river. Then he gets on the Ohio and moves all the way down through Paducah. Mm-hmm. Ends up at Cairo. 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 Um, he talks about seeing gunboats. And then he gets, then he's on the Mississippi River. And then he ends up in Memphis, which is a altogether different story because Memphis at that time is occupied by U.S. troops. So he's still behind U.S. lines. Mm-hmm. And he makes some really interesting references in Memphis. Um, he sees a, I think he calls it a Negro school. He sees, um, because this is now 64 and the Freedmen's Bureau is actually already working on various projects. And so they've taken in um, escaped slaves, their children, and he sees something that I think when you read the words, it's shocking to him that he sees these black children in essentially a a public school. He also makes clear reference Mm -hmm. to seeing USCT soldiers. I was just looking it up to read it. He says... Some of the Negro soldiers are insolent, but most of them, when approaching you, thrust their caps under their arms and from force of nature play the slave. And what an honest assessment that is. He, he mentions that they're insolent, which I think from his perspective, you know, any black man acting anything his equal would be insolent. But he also mentions that, that byproduct of being enslaved, which is stepping aside, showing some, some courtesy just because he's a white man. And of course, how would they have ever known that? You know, here he is, the son of, of, of someone who actually owns slaves. He talks about how well he played a U.S. soldier, and he calls himself a Captain USA, which makes me laugh. <laughs> because he was there for, I think, at least 10 days. Yeah, he spent 10 days in Memphis as well, um, just sort of trying to figure out how he could get out of U.S. lines into Confederate territory. So, you know, he even knew all the pickets and where they were and how far apart they were. And he was playing, you know, I'm a Yankee officer 
by he was playing a citizen by day and a um, Yankee officer by night, which is when he called himself Captain USA, which is interesting. And I didn't mention James Gubbins was actually recaptured. So they both escaped, but James Gubbins was recaptured. Oh, the other guy who escaped yeah, that, that same escaped day. escaped with him. So he was recaptured. I just thought it was an interesting thing to mention. He was captured in on his way back because his the 5th Louisiana was actually with the Army of Virginia. And so he was on his way back the other direction. Todd was on his way south. Lee's army. Yeah. And so he got recaptured and then re-escaped. Well, I think before I think it's also important to point out that we just kind of jumped to uh, Todd was going here, here, here. But if you look at his route, I'd always wondered how did he get back to the army? And so for me, the details were interesting, but it was the route that he traveled that I found especially fascinating. So think about he he jumps the train in in February um, of '64. So it's it's winter time. Mm-hmm. Well. If you're in Ohio, the most direct route to North Georgia is straight south. Well, almost straight south. Except he'd have to move in the in the dead of winter through the Appalachians. And I think Todd realized pretty early on that was not going to be feasible, not as a person really traveling by himself. So he finds this alternative route. And really what he does is he plays this, he moves almost in a circle. Because from Memphis, we know he goes down into Mississippi. He's at one point in Grenada, then he's in Oxford. I don't know which he was in first. I would presume it was Grenada, but Mississippi is a state that's half divided. Part of it's under U.S. control, but part of it isn't. He gets stopped in Oxford. They think he's a spy. He makes it all the way through the U.S. soldiers and then finds the Confederates and they arrest him. <laughs> right, right, because they're, they're in Oxford and... Um, but then from Oxford, he we don't really know wh- how he exactly gets to Dalton, but presumably he would have just cut straight east because he wouldn't have come into Tennessee. That's all under mm-hmm. – well, presumably he wouldn't have Where's gone. Grenada as compared to Oxford? Well, Grenada is southwest of Oxford. It's it's closer to the Mississippi. But, That's where he was when he sent the notice. He's, yeah. He sent a telegram or a message to the newspaper and said, tell – Colonel Benton, I'm, or um, Colonel Smith, um, I've escaped. I'm on my way back. But the easiest route from Oxford would have been to shoot straight east across central Alabama. As long as you were south of the Tennessee River, you were in Confederate territory. And then from there, you just move by uh, Sand Mountain in East Alabama, and you'd be in Dalton, Georgia. And he's back. I think it takes him, what, four weeks, maybe five weeks to make the trip? He's back by April 5th. Yeah, I mean, we know he spends 10 days in Cincinnati. He's in Memphis for a similar period of time. So he's kind of, he's killing a bunch of time. But the the travel from point A to point B takes him at least at least a month. And ironically, he gets back to Dalton just in time for the campaign to begin. I mean, he literally gets there as the Army of Tennessee is about to um, begin having to defend itself against Sherman's advance toward, toward Atlanta. And... I do, I do find it interesting, you kind of touched on this a few minutes ago, that he kind of presents himself with this kind of devil-may-care attitude. Like, he, he's writing all this like he's telling a story from a novel or something like that. You don't think there was any sense of embellishment since he's writing it all after the fact? Do you think he's actually just relaying the events as they played out? I've read a lot of letters from war correspondents like this, and um, some of them have a little bit of flair, and... and I don't think he's really embellishing, but I can say I've never really read any letters quite like 
what Todd Carter writes. And I think Todd Carter quite enjoyed what he was doing in a way that's very unique. And I think, Christy and I have talked about this, I think Todd Carter really liked Todd Carter. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I think that Todd Carter would have loved to have uh, been on a podcast and, and been tweeting or, you know, been posting on Facebook. Because I think that's oh, exactly... would have loved Twitter. Oh, he would have. <laughs> he would have been taking selfies in the whole nine yards. I mean, you can see in him the very sort of thing you see in other people. Look he at me. He was an influencer. Look, look at yeah. me. <laughs> right, right, exactly. He's always special. Right? Yeah. Hashtag I'm amazing. Yeah. You know, he's, and you see it. He's... It's almost like sport, and but he's very committed. He he makes a reference in Mississippi about how, you know, the the citizens are are you know essentially oppressed, but the but the fire and the spirit of of secession and independence is still there. And I think that it's le- only there in him. Well, I no, I think it's I think he's addressing what he sees in other people, but it's definitely in him. And and now when you look back on. When you see, because these are his words, what's really great is he wrote these letters. Now, the letters are long gone, but luckily they were published in this really fleeting newspaper. I mean, this is a newspaper editor who's essentially on the run. He's just publishing from wherever he can. And so it's amazing. The newspaper survived. He has train cars. To, to be able, right. He's, he's, he's publishing from train cars. It's really a Confederate story. You know, it's they're, they're getting squeezed in every direction, but he's still trying to get the in many ways, the propaganda out. Still good, still good. We still got a chance. For me, when you read this, you can see why he did what he did on November 30th, 1864. I think we need to talk about that. What what happens? Then? I agree a thousand percent. Uh, well, we know ultimately what happens. You know, he's mortally wounded, but... I think for Todd Carter, we, we for a long time, people have heard this story for years. You know, he hadn't been home in three and a half years and all that. You know, he's the prodigal son. He hadn't been home for three and a half years. And I think on that day, maybe it all became very real, really very real. This wasn't the game and the adventure anymore. Now the enemy, from his perspective, had actually taken his home. His family was behind enemy lines and they were right there but then there's still this side i think of he couldn't be killed you know he 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 could he could weather the storm i mean look at this guy he'd been through a lot of stuff he'd escaped he'd almost invincible and you know whether he said these words or not the story told through the years is he said to to james cooper follow me boys i'm going home and he charges the lines and of course he he does make it home but i i certain Certainly true, not in the fashion that he probably anticipated. And he really just goes down in this blaze of glory. But I can see how someone of that of that spirit would do it. He, he believed that they could win. He believed they still had a chance. He, he believed, to, you know, they couldn't be stopped. And a gallant targe towards the enemy. Christy, you mentioned something interesting the other day. So he, Todd writes this letter to my dear happy. Mm-hmm. Who was that? Um, Albert Roberts. 
Oh, the other guy. I know what you mean. And what's the what's the kind of coincidence that plays out um, at the end of Todd's life? Albert Roberts, his brother was um, Doctor Deering Roberts, and Albert Albert was actually in the Twentieth Tennessee. He joined the army at the same time his brother Doctor Deering Roberts did, and Doctor Deering Roberts is the one that uh, did Todd's surgery after the Battle of Franklin removed the bullets from him, which is just interesting. So he came to the house to actually do that. The, the one thing that we don't know, even after this discovery, is if the family knew Todd was out there. I actually don't think they do, because Marianne and I were looking through, um, she has all the ephemera, and um, we were looking through a newspaper one day, and it was from August of 1864, and I said, and it had fountain, had, had scribbled his name on the top. And I was like, why did he keep one newspaper? It was the entire newspaper. She goes, I don't know. I can't figure it out. So we laid it out on the table. And um, there was a little snippet in the newspaper. It took it took us a while to find it because there was just, it's such small. We had um, um, one of the, you know. Magnifying glasses? Yes, magnifying glasses. And there was a tiny little snippet. And it said, all the Tennessee boys at Point Lookout are, and what they were doing that day. And I thought, this man hasn't heard from his son since February. All letters are being returned, and he has no idea what's going on. He sees an article in the newspaper that says, and it's a U.S. newspaper, but it's talking about the Point Lookout boys. And I thought, and he looked down and he said, he was supposed to be going to Point Lookout. It's the Tennessee boys. That might be my boy. Well, that, that's a good point because we know that the letter letter written to Todd at Johnson's Island had been returned, so they knew he'd been moved from there. Mm-hmm. Then they hear about the Tennessee boys being at Point Lookout, which maybe further amplifies the story of December 1st, 64, when they first get the news that Todd's actually not just there, but that he's been wounded. And so Moscow immediately goes out to look for him, of course, can't find him. And then tragically, it's his father, as well as a couple of his sisters, and I think a sister-in-law, who find him. And and the Thomas Benton Smith of the story, he's Colonel Smith at the time of that letter. He doesn't mm-hmm. get promoted to general until the summer of 64. And and uh, it, it's just really, it, you can't make it up. I mean, th- this guy was one of a kind. And that, that kind of attitude or spirit or a conviction or whatever Todd Carter was... His father and his and Moscow, I mean, they certainly knew who he was. And I think it's interesting that it makes so much more sense now to read these letters and understand why Rosalie Carter said that this was a family divided by two flags. Because for a long time, we've considered Moscow and Fountain Branch to kind of be not so sure about secession and the war. But Todd Carter and we think Francis, they were they were the diehards. I mean, they they believed in the cause. One thing I keep thinking about is, imagine how big of a deal this is for us to figure out these missing few months or few weeks of Todd's life. But I wonder if at some point after the war or after Todd's death, if his family ended up getting their hands on one of these articles and reading through this and how that would have felt for them to be like, now we know this series of events in our boy's life who's now gone. I wonder if they ever did. I, I, I think it would have been almost impossible for them to have ever gotten their hands on one of these newspapers because they were published in such a small quantity in such a small area. Now, that doesn't mean that someone may not have related the story. Cause like James I, Cooper. Right, because mm-hmm. Todd you know, probably told everybody he could when he got back to the Army, hey, guess what I did? It's amazing. And then somebody later on... 
may have told that story. But but if they did know, they never said it. And Rosalie would have put it in her book. Mm-hmm. If they had had any that, kind of yeah, I know, agree. knowledge of that letter, it would be in the book. One last question I have is, do you see this information influencing the story that we tell on a daily basis at the Carter House? Not really. I mean, the the... the the main thrust of the story is still as we've been telling it for a good while, but I think there's a nice little 30-second piece when we talk about Todd escaping. We can say, and incredibly, he, he goes this sort of circuitous route through uh, Cincinnati and Memphis, and, and you know, basically he moves all around Tennessee. He moves around it, comes through the western part of it, and then swings to the south of it to get back to the Army, but not really, just, just some more flavor. I mention, I've been mentioning on my tours just because I like the connection for him getting on a horse and charging. And I think him jumping out of a train and all of these successes he had escaping from a prison and getting back really made him feel like he was godlike, like Pasha like, mm. like he says in the letter. Pasha like. Like yeah. Pasha like. Uh, it's an Arabic. Lord like. Uh, Lord like. It's an Arabic term. He's a very educated and schooled. Young he, man. He references Shakespeare. He ref, he uses Latin. I mean, he's really very educated. But to I I use it to say, and you know, he's so confident that he doesn't think twice about getting on his horse and charging towards a U.S. Army on a hill behind a barricade. You know, I think it really pushes and reinforces why he's so confident by November thirtieth. He doesn't think anything's going to happen to him. And there were thousands of people like him. You know, there were thousands of Southerners, the sort of beau cavalier that would become very romantic figures, and it is romantic. I think that generation of young men were very unique. There wasn't, there wasn't, really wasn't another one quite like them. Thanks again for listening to the podcast, and thanks to Christy and Eric for being our guests this week. As we always say, please sign up for our newsletter and buy one of our t-shirts on our website, boftboft.org slash podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 10in20podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast. And please subscribe and leave us a review on whatever podcast app you prefer. Only if it's a good review. Good point. (laughs) Thank you for listening.